Uh, no, no. All right, well, let's pray and ask God's blessing. Father, I just come before you now and I'm asking for um, your uh, very present and um, perceivable help as we look into teaching about you, who you are, what you do, how you think, your acts in history, your attributes, and this is a sacred topic and something we don't want to take lightly because we want to be as right and correct as we can. And so I'm praying for that and actually asking that you would help us all to uh, grow in our love of you and actually for some maybe begin loving you with all their heart and soul and mind and so please help us with that and guide me as I teach in the name of Jesus amen all right um, let me ask you to begin by looking at Isaiah chapter 6 there are a few passages in scripture where we get a uh, through a prophet we get a vision of the throne room of God, enabling us to understand more about who God is. And that's Isaiah 6 in his, most would say, his calling into the prophetic ministry. And it begins like this, Isaiah 6, verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Imagine a being so glorious, so magnificent, so holy, that the very, for a fallen sinner like Isaiah, to be in his presence is so overwhelming that you feel as though you're going to die or actually believe you will and you call down a curse upon yourself. Woe is me. Because all of a sudden in the presence of this being who is infinitely holy, in the presence of this being now there is this overwhelming sense of who he is at the core of his being. When we study about the doctrine of God, which is what this class is all about, we have to understand that we're not just studying about this doctrine to, to have facts about God or to know some things about who he is. 
but to actually develop into a situation where we under, we're so, we know him and we know about him to such an extent that we're overwhelmed and we have a greater knowledge of ourself. Matter of fact, the more you get to know God, the more you will know yourself. John Calvin said this in the beginning of his uh, institutes. He said, it is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he have previously committed, contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. For such is our innate pride, we always seem to ourselves just and right and wise and holy until we are convinced by clear evidence of our injustice, vileness, folly, and impurity. That was the experience of Isaiah in the presence of the holy God. This knowledge now all of a sudden of himself in light of who God is. I really want us, as we study the doctrine of God, to become overwhelmed with who God is, to have times in which, not just in this class, uh, while we're sitting in here, but as you take information we think about, as you take about uh, the things we learn about God and who he is into your weekly life, and I hope you will, and even as you're driving along in your car or you're laying there getting ready to go to bed at night, maybe you can meditate upon who this God is and think about his greatness and his goodness and his glory and these kinds of things and actually become overwhelmed with what you are experiencing and that it would result in uh, uh, humility, which is what all good theology should result in, uh, humility and love for God. Uh, in, in, uh, so we're not just studying theology to be knowledgeable, that's important, but Paul said that knowledge puffs up and has that tendency to make a person pride. They can, they, uh, proud. They can know a lot about God and not really know God at all because if they really knew God, it would create within them humility and love. So really, I mean, very quickly, I'm gonna roll through this first part, this reorientation. Then I have something that I'll show you in scripture here. This is a doctrine of God. The word doctrine or teaching of God, it's a theology type of class that what we're doing here. Uh, and um, what is theology? Uh, one definition here on the handout comes from Greek theos and God and logos word. It's the systematic study of the being, attributes, purposes, and works of God and of the world, man, and history in relationship to him. It is re usually referred to as a science, which surprises people sometimes, because it should be conducted by the investigation of the objective data of divine revelation, which has its full expression in the written and incarnate word, i.e. in the Bible and in its Christ-centered message. Indeed, theology used to be called the queen of the sciences. Um, had anybody heard that before that maybe wasn't part of the class before? The idea that theology used to be, back in the day, okay, part of the science uh, arena. So if you were to walk into a university and you would go into the sciences, one of them would be that of theology because of the way we come to our conclusions about our theology. Um, theology is the science of God and of the relationship between God and the universe. It's a science because we observe objective data. Uh, that should be data, not date. Search for what is real and true and draw conclusions about that truth based on what you observed. And we have really 
two primary sources of data whereby we investigate that data and we study that data until we arrive at these conclusions, which is our theology. What are those two sources? The Bible. Another one? Lesser to the Bible. Creation. Did somebody say creation? So you have creation and you have the Bible. These are the two main forms of revelation and you can ascertain theology from both. However, with creation, you can only get general theology, which would say there is a God. And a lot of this is stuff we covered in, in earlier in the semester, so I'm just reviewing it here, that there is a God, right? Romans 1, uh, they, people are without excuse because they can look at the things that are created and come to the conclusion that there's a God who created them and of his eternal power and divine nature. This is something God is saying is true of everyone, okay? That they intuitively, I don't care if they grew up in a Christian arena or not, but they intuitively know there's a God. But only generally speaking can we know God in that way. The second uh, uh, and uh, the second area in which we study to get our theological conclusions is from the Bible. And that's what we call special revelation. And this is where, this is God's gift to us, the written word, and then also the incarnate word, who is Jesus, God's gift to us in knowing who he is. And it's in these areas, especially in scripture, this is the primary source as the Christian wants to know theology his or her primary source of theological knowledge is in the Bible because the Bible is God revealing himself to us. We have to remember something about God, right? God is invisible. Matter of fact, uh, one of the Puritan catechisms for little kids, I taught Wyatt when he was younger. The question is uh, something affected, what is God? And he says, God is invisible and does not have a body like men. It's one of the primary things we need to know about God. I mean, the only way we can know him then is if he were to specifically reveal himself. So we study the Bible in order to draw these conclusions about God and know who he is. Okay, and then the goal of theology, I hinted at this earlier. Uh, I, this is pulled from Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four and five. I have it here on there. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with or from all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So the goal of knowing God then is loving God with our entire being. Uh, the Westminster Catechism, of course, the first question, what is the chief end of man? What is, what, what is man supposed to be about? What is the, what is, uh, the goal of, uh, of all human beings should be? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So in our theological studies, we aren't just developing, you know, understanding about who God is. It's that understanding is supposed to lead into this idea that we enjoy him and that we love him from our heart. And that works its way out into our lives, just as we were talking about this morning. It begins in here in our treasuring of God and, and loving him that is 
what our goal in theological studies would be, okay? So that's what we're trying to get to here. That's what we want to do every single week. We're learning about God as we go through different passages and topics, and we're going to learn about God, and then we're praying that God would uh, use that in such a way that we love him more. You know, it is such a, a thing is that God wants to be delighted in. God wants to be enjoyed. Uh, God wants us to have affection for him uh, that Lord willing is growing throughout our lives. That we, we want him and desire him. And so that by the time we're at the end of our journey and, uh, and it's time for us to die, we are actually, there is a part of that for a Christian that has been pursuing this her whole life, that there is a joy in that. Because now you are going to go into the fullness of his presence. So as some of the Puritans would refer to death as just this doorway into the fulfillment of all the promises and being able to be with God. So that their goal, even as they taught and preached, is that their people didn't fear death. But that it was something that not, no, we didn't just all run around saying, man, I can't wait to die. But we're preparing our whole lives to die by growing in our love for God so that when that happens, it's this natural transition into God's eternal presence. But it is only people that enjoy God, that love God, that want that. I mean, if you think about this, when you, when you look into the end of the book of Revelation, the key feature about the new heavens and the new earth and our life there is not what the streets are made of or what the buildings will look like or even the fact that we're going to see loved ones that have departed. What or who is the key feature of the new heavens and new earth? What makes it so spectacular? Jeez, God, right? We are with God forever. Now, if you have no delight in God at all here, no joy in him, then why in the world would you want to go there? Because I'm afraid for some Christians, it's simply this, or professing Christians rather, I just don't want to go to hell. I mean, I was told about hell. That doesn't sound fun at all. I've been told about hell since I was a little kid. Used to have nightmares as a little kid about going to hell. And I'd pray almost every night that I'd be saved, you know. But it's like, why? Because I, because I want to get out of hell, but it really has nothing to do with God. And I would argue that's not true Christianity. True Christianity is all about enjoying God, loving God, until I get to be with God. So when, if we're going to study the doctrine of God, we're going to study it for the perspective of, I need the Spirit to produce within me then this love for God first and foremost and my passion for Him to grow over time. Because let's be honest, as I can be honest, I'll be honest with you. I have had times and seasons where my enjoyment of God is diminished. And usually, I can look at those times and nail down the issue is uh, a weight or a sin that is besetting me. Something that I am doing or 
uh, not doing or something that is slowing me down in my thought, I'm thinking here of Hebrews 12 and running that race looking to Jesus, that is actually clouding and diminishing and quenching out my joy and delight in God. And we live in a culture that, man, we live in a culture where uh, once we leave here and we go into our life, uh, and maybe we can go home tonight and turn on a television, or we go into our workplace tomorrow, or you're going through, there's, there's, there's no God out there. We're not getting anything of God out there. Do you see what I'm saying? Everything is against this, what should be our ultimate desire to know him and to love him. Everything in our lives is against that. And so we need to make sure, even you coming here tonight shows in a part that God has worked in you, desire to know him more. And I encourage you to stick with it. I encourage you to devote 45 minutes to an hour on Sunday evenings from five to six, just until May-ish probably. And you say, I'm gonna use that time to study about God and learn about God for the purpose of enjoying him and delighting in him and finding those things in our lives really that, that are interfering with that is really important and getting rid of them, putting them to death, okay? Uh, two, two more things on this before I uh, bring us to something I wanna show us uh, before we uh, get, in, get into the actual meat of what we're looking at. As we approach the doctrine of God, uh, there are two ideas that are important to think about as we're looking at scripture. Number one is this concept of progressive revelation, What does that mean? That means that God did not do a data download in one thing to us at one time and give us all the information about himself that he wanted us to have. What he did is he revealed himself progressively throughout time, right? That's why you have books that were written at this time by this person and then maybe later on another person writes this and then later on another person writes this and it progressively works. God revealing himself with written revelation progressively until you get into the New Testament of our Bibles and you see God revealing himself now in this unique way as the the sun arrives And God is revealing himself to us and then past that, all of the writings of the New Testament progressively. The reason that's important in studying the doctrine of God is because if I'm going to look at tonight, just we'll only get into it for a few minutes, Exodus 3, and we're analyzing the name of God, okay? The divine name. It means that we cannot arrive at all of our conclusions about the significance of that name by staying only in Exodus 3. We will have to journey all the way into the New Testament as God more fully revealed himself to see how that is affected. Or a better example might be this. When we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, the triune nature of God, right? Father, Son, and Spirit, one divine being in essence, but three distinct persons. Well, you have to, to really understand that doctrine, you have to start in the New Testament and then work your way back to it and then you'll see it in the Old Testament because the Jews, if you would have sat down with the Jew after Malachi was written, last book of the Old Testament, so could you uh, articulate to me please the uh, definition of the Trinity? 
What is the Trinity? They'd have had no idea what you're talking about. Describe to us the triune nature of God. Well, they'd have no idea. See, it was in the Son that we all of a sudden see most clearly the Father and the Son and the Spirit and how that all works together through the gospel now. And then you can look back and say, oh, right from Genesis 1, just as I showed this morning, the Spirit is there. And then John connects Genesis 1 with the eternal Word who is the Son who became flesh, speaking, those kinds of things, okay? So it's very important to understand that idea of progressive revelation and that in Jesus, God specifically more fully and particularly reveals himself. So studying theology requires all of the Bible in the end. To draw the conclusions we need to draw about who God is, we need all of the Bible, Old and New Testament. Uh, and then I had John uh, seventeen six. I have manifested, or no, John one eighteen. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And that's a reference to Jesus. Okay, that in a nutshell is um, the introduction of the doctrine of God. Now, if some of you were not part of this before, back in the fall, those videos are available online, I think. And uh, I'm pretty sure all of them are there and recorded. So if you wanted to go back and take a look at that. Um, so with that, uh, here, here, I've said that I wanted to do things a little differently. Okay. The way we were doing it is, is the way you would do what I experienced when I took a, a systematic theology class at seminary or um, a theology class at uh, a seminary. You go in and they will give you um, the topic, like the attributes of God. And we go and we would see, hey, God is sovereign and God is holy and God is righteous, and God is good, and God is loving, all those things. And then you'd say, here are all the verses that teach that doctrine. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. It's actually very profitable, very good. But I want to take a little different direction, I think, for our church. And as a pastor here, I want us to actually look at particular passages that are very important, park in those passages for a week or two, and then pull all of those doctrines out of it. Does that make sense? I want to start with the scriptures and actually do the work of what a good theologian would have already done. He looked at all the particular passages. He drew all those points out. And then he summarizes a doctrine at the end, like God is righteous. And here are all the verses that prove that point. And I want us to kind of go back and start that way. I want us to look at particular passages of scripture Read through those, think through those, and then draw from those, this is who God is. And almost thinking of it in a different kind of, with a different question. Before the question may have been, who is God? Well, let's look at, let's, uh, God is righteous. Here's all the verses that teach that. I think in the way we're doing it now, this way, it's going to be more like this. We're going to open up Exodus 3 and the question is going to be, who are you, God? And we will let God reveal himself to us from those particular passages. It's a slightly different approach, and I think for our church it'll be profitable. Any questions on anything I've said so far? Nope. Okay, let's start with our first passage, and this will be our passage for just a couple of weeks. 
will just get launched out this week. And I don't have a handout on this, uh, what we're about to do here. And some weeks, I will suggest to you this. Some weeks, we will have a handout. And some weeks, we will not have a handout. So I might suggest that you bring a notepad if you're a note taker. And um, I'll try to point out some of the main things that you can see. Uh, but just for various reasons, not, not the least of which I literally, and I don't always use literally unless it's literally true, I literally hate putting handouts together. I hate it, but I do it sometimes because it's necessary. I just hate doing it. So sometimes it will be there and sometimes it will not be there. Exodus 3. And... Um, we're going to look at, uh, let me just summarize the first 12 verses for you. Um, essentially, this is, of course, the account of Moses at the burning bush. Israel at this point is uh, in captivity in Egypt. They've been there for 400 years. Started out okay when Joseph was around because they were led into there and they got to use the land and they escaped the famine and that whole, all those story that you can read about in Genesis and the history of Israel. But over the course of 400 years, the pharaohs turned against the people of Israel and actually enslaved them. So by the time you get to the end of that 400 year period, you have the, the, uh, the nation of Israel enslaved and unhappy and being mistreated by the Egyptians. And God sends to Israel Moses, who had grown up in Egypt in providential circumstances, right? And sends Moses to Israel and back to Egypt to go to Pharaoh to get, this is the commissioning that you're seeing in, in Exodus 3, to lead the people out of captivity, okay? That's all I'll say about that for right now. Now listen to that. Look at this in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, first of all, let's, let's ask this question. Why would Moses have to ask God for his name? Any thoughts on that? Yes, ma'am. Right. Right, exactly. The, the Israelites had been in Egypt for 400 years. They didn't have a Bible to keep them going or teachers and, and that they had oral tradition passed down that was probably by this point very confused. 
and disoriented. And the Egyptians were polytheists like everyone else was. That means they worshiped other gods. So there is somewhat of a clarification here. Which God is this, they might ask. Uh, is, this the, is this Ra, the Egyptian creator God, or who, which God is this? And so he clarifies with his name and with the fact that he is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They would have known enough about that to understand part of this, I'm sure. But 400 years is a long time. Much of what you read in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, written mostly by Moses himself, was Moses, well, God through Moses, reorienting the people to himself. This is why it starts with Genesis 1. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Okay? So it has to begin with Genesis 1. We're reintroducing the people to who the true God is. And that's why Deuteronomy 6 that we read earlier is so important. Behold, uh, uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And that means two things. We talked about this before. Two things, essentially. One, numerically, uh, and that is, uh, we learn later that he's three persons and one God, but there are not three gods. And then it's also one as in the only. One and only and one. Okay, so it's reorienting people to God. But he answers in a very strange way. What is your name? What should I tell them? Who are you? And he says, I am who I am. That's interesting, isn't it? It almost seems like if you, if you didn't know much more past this, maybe God was being a little snarky. Like, who are you? Well, I am who I am. That's who I am, you know. And if you don't know, you better ask somebody, right? Maybe he's being a little snarky. Maybe he's being a little funny. What is it? No, it's not that at all. When God reveals himself and who he is, and he does this in verse 14, this is my name. He says, I am who I am. And then he says, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and the underlying Hebrew word here, I am, is a verb. And it's a verb of being. Actually, the verb itself is the verb hayah. I remember that when I was taking some Hebrew because I would just connect it to karate chops, right? You're going to karate chop somebody, you go hayah, okay? That's to be. It's essentially what the verb is, the verb to be. And depending on whether it's past or present or future or first person, the second person, third person, it could be I am, I will be, I was, third person, uh, uh, or... Um, Plural would be like, we were. We have the same understanding, right, in uh, English that they do. We have the word is or the word be. And this is a verb. This is important to understand. It is a verb of being. Okay? It's a verb of being, existence. Something is. Something will be. Something was. It's a verb of being. So think about this, and we're not going to get into it too much this week. I want to really park on it next week. But you think about this. When God wants to reveal himself and names himself and communicates his name, he uses a verb of existence as though to say, I am the one who exists. 
I am the one who was, who is, who will be, who always has been. So it means much, and we will look at more of what it means next week. I am who I am, and he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has uh, sent me to you. Now here's what I want to talk about just for a few minutes, and I hope this helps you read your Bible. Some of you may be familiar with this. If not, you will be after this. Look at verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Now that word, Lord, you see it there in verse 15, all capital letters. And actually, if you have one of our Bibles here, it has a little footnote, doesn't it? Number two, the word Lord, when spelled with capital letters, stands for the divine name. And then you notice those uh, letters there, Y-H-W-H. So Y-H-W-H is the underlining, this would be English, uh, there's Hebrew letters for this, but Y-H-W-H. Four letters, matter of fact, uh, theologians call it the tetragrammaton, the four letters. They know what they're talking about when they say that. It's the divine name of God. It is a form, this Yahweh, where you're seeing Lord in verse 15, is a form of the verb hayah. It's a form of what he just said. I am who I am. And in Hebrew, if you change it from like a first person to a third person or whatever, you're going to just change the word a little bit, a different form that's going to key you into that's what it is. Us, we change the word completely. So he is and he was are two different words, okay? But in Hebrew, you just change it up a little bit. And the Y-H-W-H is the form of the, the of verb haya uh, or to be or is or I am. And probably this is the form that would say something like this. He is. He is has sent you to, the, to them. So why in the world do our English translators, when they're coming to these texts, and by the way, anytime you see Lord, you read in your Bible, and you see Lord in all capital letters. This is really important. It is the translation, or it's not really a translation, but it is the word representing Y-H-W-H. So why in the world would translators do that? Or most of the translators, except for one translation now that I have found that will do it. You have something to this effect. Why would they do that? Okay, well, let me, let me tell you the story. Some of you may know this, and some of you don't. Okay, so this is just for interests of yours. This is probably how we'll summarize this lesson tonight, and it'll make you sound smart when you talk about it. Okay, you can sound like you really know what you're talking about, like I'm about to do right now, okay? So basically what happened was the Jews, in writing out the divine name, Okay, they were so afraid of mispronouncing this name or writing it in a wrong way that they didn't like to do that. They wouldn't, and especially with the pronunciation area. The reason is, is because they were not to take the name of the Lord in vain. 
So Israel has always had, uh, back in the day, they had scribes, and these scribes would meticulously and carefully write out all of the sacred writings. And when they would come to a place like this, or let's say they were in the synagogue and they're reading Exodus chapter three, and they would come into that place where they would find the divine name, what we translate L-O-R-D in all caps, they would come to that divine name and they're not gonna dare pronounce that name out loud and run the risk of actually mispronouncing that name and thereby be cursed because, you know, they've taken the name of the Lord in vain. And so they would skip over it or they would use the other word, uh, English, L-O-R-D, as you come across this in your uh, English Bibles without the uppercase. And this is the word for, and you'll probably be familiar with this, Adonai. Anybody heard that? Adonai means Lord, ruler, master, you know, one who is, has authority and sovereignty. That is another name, if you will, or title better for God in the Old Testament. He is Adonai. And we would translate that when our translators come along, Adonai, okay, L-O-R-D with lower capitals. Now, Hebrew was really interesting because Hebrew is a, is a uh, language that does not have vowels. It is all consonants or what they call radicals, which is why this looks funny to us, right? What are we missing in YHWH? Yeah, a, if you know what we're going, Yahweh, right? You're missing the A and the E. You're missing the vowels that help you pronounce the name. The reason they didn't have it is because originally they didn't need it. This was their language. This was their writing. So just as if you've ever done one of those exercises where they've removed the vowels out of a sentence and you can read it almost just as well, if you're familiar with the sentence and you know where it's going, you can read it almost just as well without the vowels because you can put it all together, right? That's what they did. So for centuries, they had this writing that was all consonants, we call them consonants, and no vowel points at all, and they knew how to pronounce these things very well. About 500 AD, and this is where we're getting into where we get this idea of Lord here. About 500 AD, there were these group of scribes. You remember the scribes are the ones in Jewish culture that started back with Ezra. They would just copy the scriptures and they'd keep them. It was their job to make sure these, the scriptures stayed with the people. And they invented vowel points for, and we thank uh, those of us who have had a Hebrew class or two, we thank the Masoretes for that because otherwise we would be doing what modern Hebrew does now if you go to Israel without many vowels. I think they only have five vowels that very rarely appear in their words. It's more just the consonants and they know what they're talking about, but we don't. But in biblical Hebrew, the Masoretes came along and they said, we need to not only keep the writings, we need to keep the pronunciation, because our people have gone through a lot over the centuries. They've been deported to Babylon. They've learned different languages. They're forgetting how to pronounce the name. They've come from all different places. And so they're, for, or not just the name, but the, the pronunciation of the words. And so they invented these vowel points and they would stick these little vowel points onto auto letters. And then you come along and if you know what those vowel points are, you can read it. Well, lo and behold, because the Masoretes picked up on the tradition of worrying about the mispronunciation of the divine name, they didn't want people trying it. So somewhere along the line, they took the vowel points for Adonai 
and they stuck them on Yahweh. So let's say when you were standing in synagogue reading and you came across the four letters, you would see that the vowel points don't match up with what you know it should be and you would pronounce it just Adonai. So if you were standing in synagogue, they would probably come across that. Uh, tell him, uh, I am sent me to you. And then they would say, uh, uh, Adonai, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They wouldn't read the name. But the problem is, is over time, people didn't know that rule. And so they started pronouncing English speakers, and the first time this shows up is about, right about the 1300s, as they're translating out of Hebrew, they didn't know this rule. And they started pronouncing Yahweh, or Y-H-W-H, with the vowel points of Adonai. And do you know what you get when you do that? Where'd my eraser go? When you do that, you get this. Something to this effect. Jehovah. Everybody heard of Jehovah? Jehovah is a mispronunciation of the divine name, which should be something to the effect of Yahweh, because it has it is Yahweh with the vowel points for Adonai. That's why you don't see Jehovah anymore in translations like you did in the King James because they didn't know this or uh, the Tyndale Bible so we're talking way back you know 400 years ago where they would use sometimes Jehovah instead of Lord for Yahweh okay and so um, if you ever encounter Jehovah's Witness say hey wait a minute Simple fact of the matter is your whole religion is based on a mispronunciation of the divine name. So why would I believe anything else <laughs> that your religion offers if it's wrong right from the get-go, okay? So they, scholars agree that it's probably pronounced with the proper vowel points, something to the effect of Yahweh or Yahweh. It is interesting. They were so legalistic about mispronouncing the divine name they caused a lot of confusion and a lot of mispronunciation of the divine name right would have been better to just stick with what it was and teach people what it was but now our translators for whatever reason most of them except for the Holman uh, Christian Standard Bible which is a newer translation of the Bible go with Lord in all capital letters they just stick with that with that translation even though Yahweh is not the name Lord where am I? 549. Any questions on that? So you're reading through your Bible and you come across Lord in all capital letters. What is it? It's Yahweh, right? It's the divine name that God gives right here that he wants to be known by forever throughout all generations, not just temporarily, but by all his people forever. And if you come across Lord with lowercase O-R-D, what, what name is it or title? Adonai, okay? So just a little factoid for you there. Um, any questions on that or comments on that? Yes, ma'am. That was the one. Yeah, so, so they, they, that was it. And so just like us, when we read the, the commandment that says, uh, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, 
that command is somewhat subjective in the sense of we could say, what exactly does that mean? So does that mean, uh, as an example, if I mispronounce it or if I use it in a cuss word? Or does it mean, but I think it was more pointing towards, of course, those things would be true, but it was pointing, but do not take up the name of the Lord in vain. In other words, you're going to be called by my name. Do not do this in a light fashion. You're representing me here on earth as my people, okay? Some of the effect. So it's kind of subjective. And they were just really cautious and fearful. We don't want to uh, minimize their good intention in that. But uh, there was no command anywhere that God said they couldn't pronounce his name. You see, this is the name I want to be known by forever, which would more indicate I want my name known as I'm giving it to you. Because as we'll look at next week, it matters. This name matters what I'm giving to you. This verbal form of Haya, and that is being my divine name, matters because it speaks about who I am. So that's what I'm saying. They did that, but there's no grounding for what they did. So one thing I'll show you, leave you with this, Philippians chapter two. Remember we said we always want to connect these things throughout scripture. And um, this, of course, is about the humility of Christ. And uh, our supposing, uh, we're supposed to have humility as well. But he says, um, have this mind, verse 5, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but empties himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in... uh, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even on a cross. That's what we would call the humiliation of Christ, right? The one who is the eternal son in the form of God becomes a man. What name, by the way, we just celebrated Christmas. What name, significant name, was given to the Lord at his incarnation, Okay, Emmanuel is a name. What is the name we know him by most? Jesus was to be his name in that time, in in that state of humiliation. Now listen to this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, notice this, the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is whom? Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think the title Lord or the name Lord is given to Jesus to be understood here by Paul as Adonai? Or do you think it is to be Lord? Any thoughts? You think Adonai? Okay. You would say the divine name. The reason I would agree with you, Greg, is because what was bestowed upon him at his ascension was the name that is above every name. And the interesting thing about that is 
There, there, in, in Jesus' day, Paul's day, Paul would have been familiar with the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So the original Bible is written in Hebrew. All of a sudden comes along, Greek speaking language is the main thing. They translate that into Greek. And did you know in Exodus chapter three, as those Jews are translating into Greek the Hebrew text, and it says, it says uh, back in Exodus three, he says, uh, tell them that the Lord, we said the Lord or Yahweh, uh, tell them that Yahweh, uh, the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has uh, uh, sent me to you. They didn't choose Adonai to translate Yahweh. They chose, the, uh, uh, or any reference to it, they chose a, a Greek word, kurios, which is, in this case, it can have reference to simple Lord or what have you, but in this case, I think has reference more to the idea of Yahweh, which is the name above all names. And you remember in the Gospel of John, Jesus had seven statements about himself. How did they begin? I am. I am. To the extent that when he said that in John chapter 8 to the people, uh, uh, to some of those that were opposed to him, he said, uh, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they said, Wait, you're not even 50. You've seen Abraham? And Jesus said, before Abraham was, and then what's he say? I am. Ego, I me, by the way, which is the same as how they translate in uh, Exodus 3 in the Greek. And what did they do? They picked up stones to throw him, throw at him, right? Because they knew he was claiming to be Yahweh, that what we learn is the son, that this Jesus, this first century Jewish man, was not just a first century Jewish man. He was the one who appeared to Jacob and to uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and appeared to Moses in Exodus chapter three and revealed himself by that divine name, I am, okay? So um, I don't know, hope that's helpful as you're reading through your Bible and understanding uh, God's name. Next week, we will really jump into the divine name and why we think uh, what we can learn from from that. Okay. I think they got it wrong in Philippians too, the way the no, I don't think so. No, I'm saying we have to determine what do they mean by Lord. Are they thinking of Adonai or are they thinking of Yahweh? That's all I meant by that. Nobody got it wrong. I'm saying that we we think it's. I make the decision that it's the name above every name, which is Yahweh, because that's been made very clear in Scripture. Yes? Real quick, this may or may not be the forum for it, or you may want to answer this question later, but my cousin's wife is a Anglican minister. Okay. And she says, I mean, she celebrates marrying gay couples, and she would argue that the progressive revelation by the Holy Spirit is what now allows for that to occur. Is that even something we're going to delve into here, or is that... That it allows which to occur? She would say, she would argue that the progressive revelation of the Holy Spirit on the earth since Christ's death yeah. has now revealed that gay marriage is okay. Right. Does that make sense? Is, yeah. Is well, it makes sense what she's saying, but it's not. Yeah, I no, right. That, but would she use that as... I'm not arguing that. Category. Like, in other words, she's saying, though, what her, her point would be that uh, and here's would be my answer to that, just shooting from the hip without thinking of it much. But she's saying what something we need to make sure, and I should have pointed that out. When we see that, the, that Jesus is Yahweh incarnate, mm-hmm. then we have to understand that there is no distinction between 
Yahweh of the Old Testament and Yahweh of the New. And so the way he thought about things and the rules he made and the laws he made, especially governing marriage when he first begins with marriage being between a man and a woman, that didn't change. Do you see what I mean? Right, yeah. Right. By his very nature over passage of time, by his very name, yeah. since that changes in our progressive knowledge of how the name is, yeah. and what other things have also changed. In the right. The, so anything, the moral character of God doesn't change. change. He's unchanging, right? right. So if we, if we view it as this is a moral issue that God has established male-female relationship from the beginning, which he did, sure. very easily proven, that we can say that she's trying to argue that God changed. That's what progressive revelation. To agree, I would say, she might say, I would not say God is changing. And I would say what you are saying is God is changing. Because all of a sudden, what God calls good or right is no longer good or right. It's changed now, adapted. I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. That, that, that's where I'm coming from. I didn't know what the counter to that are. Or even because you related to this topic here. I'm yeah. reaching in and grabbing straws and no, I think it is, and I'm glad you brought it up because one of the points I was going to make and probably bring up next week is that because the Lord is revealed as Yahweh or Jesus is revealed as Yahweh, God hasn't changed in who he was. Some people try to pit the Old Testament God against Jesus. Jesus is this really loving, you know, kind of tolerant exactly. one, exactly but he's, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and Moses, so it's good. Well, we got to end there because it's six, um, and I, I'm a man of my word. But if you have anything else you want to share with me, maybe bring it up next week or you can talk to me afterwards, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and your love to us. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Help us to treasure you and your word. Thank you for each of these people. I pray that you bless them this week and um, help them in their various uh, areas of life and trials that they're walking through, I'm sure. I ask this in the name of Jesus, amen.